analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. A little bit of an overcast day here in Camelot. We'll see a little bit of blue sky, though. Uh, not the worst thing in the world if we see a little bit of rain, considering the wildfire threat out there. Uh, we got a packed show for you. We're going to talk to the mayor of Quinnell, Bob Simpson, about the forestry crisis. Mike Bernier, the MLA for Peace River South, will be on to discuss a matter close to his heart that might be of interest to our listenership. And as well, we're going to meet uh, one of the representatives of the nonprofit group that's formed to push for the Downtown Performing Arts Centre concept. Uh, but first off, as we always do after a council meeting on a Wednesday here on the Woodford Show, a real pleasure to welcome in studio this morning, Mayor of Kamloops, Ken Christian. Good morning, Ken. How are you? I'm great. It sounds like you have a two-mayor day today. A two-mayor day, that's right. How, do you like Bob Simpson? I like Bob Simpson. Yeah, he's great a good guy, guy. yeah. yeah. Uh, he'll have an interesting take on the forestry thing in a little bit. But um, before we get into civic matters, I haven't heard you speak yet on Trans Mountain. Yesterday, of course, the second green light after the court mandated they got to go back and talk to First Nations. Uh, deal with marine impacts on the coast here in BC. Federal government figures they put a big check mark beside both of those and say, okay, we're going to do this thing. Although some interesting aspects, they look like they're going to open up some kind of economic opportunity or possibly ownership to all the First Nation groups along the pipeline route. And they're going to use all of the money, the tax revenue and or the money from a sale uh, to fund a transition to clean energy. But I know how important that tax revenue is for this city. So uh, reaction to the news yesterday? Well, first of all, I think it's great news. I, I think uh, it's kind of a, a, a triple win for us. It, it's a win on the economy, uh, on employment, and on the environment. So from the economic perspective, uh, of course, uh, there is the construction phase and yeah. uh, camels being in the center of a reach between Darfield and Merritt. We're going to see a lot of growth. As I look out your window, I see pipe uh, parked on the rail siding right over there right now. And, <laughs> it actually and, is, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that uh, is going to be great. And I think at a time when the forest industry has really dealt us some blows, particularly in, in the North Thompson, uh, yeah. the potential for uh, softening that, I don't think it'll correct it, but it'll soften it. That's uh, good news. Uh, also, issues related to uh, the uh, tax revenue that the city of Kamloops will be receiving, plus the community benefit agreement for Kamloops, for other cities uh, around, and the First Nations around is good news. But the biggest thing for me is, from an environmental perspective, it does not make sense to ship oil products by rail. Uh, it's far more efficient, uses far less greenhouse gas to use a pipeline, and it's safer. And it's safer for the native salmon stocks. Uh, when you, you run rail lines down the valley bottoms yeah. next to rivers, it's dangerous. And this is good. And the added bonus uh, from yesterday's announcement is, uh, you know, that the government has committed to use the uh, profits and, and funds from this to further support uh, greening the country. And hey, we get it. We have to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. There's no argument about that. But you yeah. can't just shut the pipe off like they're trying to do in Burnaby. And, yeah. and so, you know, to uh, use those funds to uh, make concerted effort to uh, make uh, Canada more environmentally responsible, I think, is good public policy. It made me think of Norway, which is the oil-rich country in the Scandinavian countries, but it uses uh, sort of a similar idea. It funnels all its oil money into a big fund and then uses that for green, clean environmental projects. I believe Norway is the highest electric car vehicle usage per capita in the world, but it's sort of a similar concept here, and I don't understand why environmentalists don't say that's a good thing, but anyway. 
Well, you know, we, we do have the argument, uh, and it's largely being, uh, you know, done in the lower mainland about the concern over the Salish Sea. And, and it's a legitimate concern. But yeah. from what I've read, uh, the uh, precautions that they have in place uh, to uh, deal with any kind of tanker incident uh, is far more stringent than the precautions that are in place to deal with a train derailment into the North Thompson River. And nobody seems to care about that, and I do. And and I'm going to keep being strident about it because longer and longer trains are moving through our city uh, packing oil to the lower mainland who say we don't need oil. And so there's something not working in that kind of logic for me. Uh, one of the stories in our run this morning is with Finance Minister Carol James, and I asked her about an issue I know you're concerned about, which is this revenue sharing negotiation between UBCM and the province to figure out uh, a split in uh, marijuana uh, tax revenues between the province and local governments to cover off the costs you guys have incurred in setting this whole regime up. Uh, I told you off the air, my strong sense from Carol James was uh, there's a very little chance of a deal between now and September because she feels uh, the revenues aren't there yet. Costs are outweighing revenues, she says, therefore they don't understand what the pot of money could look like, therefore they can't split it up. Your reaction to that? Well, you know, I, I think when you start up any business or any retail, uh, you know, uh, regime like we've done with uh, recreational marijuana, your costs are going to be high at the beginning. That's just like setting up a coffee shop or a pizza hut place, you know. So uh, that, I think, is a pretty weak argument in terms of not uh, deciding how to do the split. The federal government have given the province 75% of the tax revenue and we want our share of that 75% because we're doing the work on the ground. And uh, so I have uh, asked for a meeting with Carol James at UBCM, and I'd be quite happy to cancel it if we have an agreement <laughs> between now and then. But, uh, you know, if we don't, then that's one of the things I want to uh, continue to uh, put forward on behalf of the citizens of Kamloops and the taxpayers of Kamloops who are currently uh, shouldering the burden. Now, the revenue argument itself is interesting from a provincial perspective. Number one, they're saying, hey, listen, uh, we haven't got the dollars flowing in like we thought we would, which is fair, they have not, but uh, the province has also been extremely slow in green lighting licensees, so we don't have a whole lot of cannabis stores out there, which means the revenues are off. So it's almost like they're kicking themselves in the face there. That said, Ken, regardless of what the full picture will be, there's still a pool of money there, whatever amount that is, there's still some money in this pool. Why not have uh, a revenue sharing agreement regardless of the money and just divvy it up? I think that's a great idea. <laughs> Shane Woodford for finance minister. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, quite frankly, I, I, I get it. There's been some problems. There's been problems with the supply chain yeah. in terms of setting up this whole, uh, you know, uh, regime. But that is to be expected. Nobody should beat anybody up over that. Let's just, you know, get through it make sure that the producers are, are providing a quality inspected product to licensed stores around the province and let's roll them out. But uh, to use that as a reason not to come up with a tax sh sharing uh, uh, system doesn't seem to make sense to me. Uh, well, now onto something a little crappier. Uh, you guys had the biosolids issue thrown at you again. You've decided to look at six options there. Uh, people are really upset about this issue. It's a fairly divisive one. Uh, how do you feel about the path that's uh, laying in front of you right now? Yeah, well, th there's there's two aspects to this. First of all, uh, yesterday uh, at Council and the Committee of the Whole, we received a, a fairly uh, lengthy and comprehensive and, and actually quite scientific uh, report from Greg Whiteman from our public uh, 
uh, or Civic Operations Department, and and uh, it talked about the long-term strategy for CAMLABS to deal with our uh, biosolids. And and going back, let's remember that you know the CAMLABS Sewerage Treatment Center uh, is a state of the art, and we now are taking out a lot of settleable material that we used to just discharge into the river. And so that is becoming, uh, you know, part of our biosolid stream. And so we have a lot of it, a lot more than we used to. Before, we used to take it to Cinnamon Ridge, uh, compost it, and use it in our parks. And so now we have more than we can use for that. So we need to find a place to put it in the long term. So they came up with five strategies, and uh, council mulled it over. We added a sixth to kind of narrow the list of possibilities going forward. Most of those involve some kind of beneficial use of the biosolids because uh, they do have very high nitrogen and phosphorus and they are a commodity that can be used in, in uh, soil rehabilitation, reclamation, uh, forestry, agriculture, grazing, those kinds of things. So uh, that was what we talked about uh, yesterday and uh, we need to uh, give the short list back to the staff and they will refine those and come up with some costs and we'll eventually get down to one or two preferred methods going forward. The issue, the more controversial issue, is the short-term disposal. And we have a contract currently with uh, Aero Transfer. And uh, they are uh, moving the product to Turtle Valley, and that's where there is some controversy about uh, the uh, use of the product at, uh, at the Turtle Valley location. That has been adjudicated by the courts as recently as... Uh, uh, a week ago Friday, and uh, Arrow has won uh, their uh, injunction against the protesters there. So uh, the court found that uh, the uh, process that they were using at Turtle Valley met all of the legislative requirements for biosolids. And, and this has been uh, sort of my uh, theme throughout the whole controversy is that, you know, people may have a problem with the regulation. Take that up with the provincial government. We mm -hmm. are... Uh, simply following the regulations that are in place in British Columbia, and we continue to do that. I'm hoping the council will go with option uh, with the second option. Se the second option. Yeah, just for the pure purpose that I can write a headline that says "Council goes number two on biosolids." That's the liquid fertilizer <laughs> option. You, you, I've been hoisted on my own petard. <laughs> Ken, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. That's Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. We'll take a quick break. On the other side, Quinnell Mayor Bob Simpson. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. A pleasure to be joined on the phone this morning by the Mayor of Quinell, former independent MLA in this province, Bob Simpson. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Good morning, Shane. I'm fine. It's a nice, cool day in Quinell. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's an issue that you and your community have managed to find a place that few other communities have reached, and that's on the forestry front. An unprecedented amount of bad news in, in such a short period of time, Bob, as you know. I mean, closures, curtailments, shutdowns, all sorts of stuff going on in the forestry sector. Uh, you saw the writing on the wall years ago, and you've managed to position your community in a relatively good place. I'm curious, before we get into what, what you've done there, how do you, as a guy who's, who's a former member of the provincial political scene and, and now in a mayor of a town that, that was heavily reliant on forestry and probably still is to some degree, uh, what do you think of the political games surrounding all the sawmill shutdowns and the forestry crisis? Well, it's, 
not surprising given the state of politics today and the default to the most simplistic, bombastic kind of politics. Uh, that we're getting the kind of response we are out of, uh, particularly Andrew Wilkinson as the leader of uh, the Liberal Party here in BC. Uh, but it is deeply disappointing, especially at a time when communities need to know that the politicians in both the province and the feds are going to have their back. And when workers are facing the permanent loss of their jobs, uh, you know, it's not a time for the petty politics that we've become used to. It's time for leaders to get together and try and figure out how to help us. How ridiculous are, I mean, you've read the letter that Wilkinson wrote mm-hmm. to the Premier. I mean, he makes suggestions like, well, John Horgan should just go down and, and get a softwood lumber deal done. John Horgan should address high costs, maybe mess around with, with soaring stumpage fees, that kind of thing. When you read stuff like that, what do you think? Well, it's particularly disappointing coming from Andrew Wilkinson, who makes no bones about he's the smartest guy in the room. To hear the kind of nonsense uh, that he's suggesting will resolve the current issue. On the one hand, he tells the Premier to go down and fix the softwood lumber problem, and on the other hand, in his letter, he says, oh, by the way, administratively or politically reduce stumpage, which is the price we charge for harvesting the logs in our province, and target the forest sector for a reduction in the carbon tax. Well, those two are contradictory. And if the government stepped in and reduced stumpage and reduced the carbon tax, the stumpage system was created by the B.C. Liberals and the carbon tax was imposed by the B.C. Liberals. So if the NDP adjusted both of those, they would prove to the Americans that we politically interfere with the costs of our forest sector and they would give them all the evidence they need to impose even greater penalties on the industry. So I find it disingenuous that an individual uh, with the level of intelligence that Mr. Wilkinson has would propose that as a solution to anything. Now, to be fair, I mean, they're the opposition. Uh, they do have some responsibility being in power for so long, 16 years prior to all this. Uh, but the NDP government of the day, as you know, is launching a renewal of the forest industry. Um, you've given them some credit for that, Bob, but are they getting things 100% correct or no? Absolutely not. Uh, and I think anybody who holds the government to account for 100% correctness with the kind of complications that we've got in the forest sector in BC. It's long history of being a very complicated file and sector to manage and deal with. I think they're fooling uh, themselves. Uh, my feeling is they're moving in the right direction. Uh, you know, I think people need to understand more mills closed in the province of British Columbia under the BC Liberal tenure than are even closing today. But more importantly, the mill closures we're experiencing today were predicted. Uh, They were predicted as early as 2005, 2006 by the Council of Forest Industries. They were certainly predicted at, you know, with amazing accuracy in 2010 uh, by two analysts that said, look, here's the number of sawmills that are going to go down. Here's the number of pulp mills uh, that will follow. And yet that uh, Liberal government in power through both Campbell and Christy Clark uh, refused Uh, to deal uh, with this issue and do any advanced planning. Now the BC NDP is left holding the bag literally and trying to figure out how to reposition an industry at a time when you can't avoid these mill closures. And that's the real telling piece of Mr. Wilkinson's letter. 
His letters suggest inherently we have a competitiveness problem, i.e. we have a cost structure problem and we have a market pricing problem. Those two exist, correct. But the real rub and the real reason that mills are closing down and they must close down is we have a no commercial timber problem. The commercial timber has basically been over-harvested at this point, and, and we have too many mills for the amount of timber going forward, and so mills have to close down. All of that was created during the Liberals' time in office and is coming to roost with the NDP. What the NDP are trying to do is position the industry for the future, and by getting some more government oversight, by engaging First Nations and communities in the the determination of what happens with the volume uh, that these companies have been trading, they're starting to move us in the right direction for an industry that's going to be smaller, leaner, and have less timber to play with. Your name came up in a conversation I was having, uh, an off-the-record conversation I was having with somebody of note uh, talking about the forestry crisis, and they were wondering what you did in Quinell. So a question to you, Bob. Uh, it's a bit, I mean, you're going to have to condense it down here. Obviously, it's a lot of stuff, but uh, what did you do in your time as mayor of Quinell to position the community in a way that you're not reeling and devastated and some of the other things that other communities are feeling today? So we immediately started uh, with our fiscal management. We positioned the community that we had the ability to have the kind of reserves and deal with the infrastructure issues that we needed to make sure the community was stable. And part of that involved freezing industrial taxes so that we weren't as dependent on the industrial tax class should we get more mill closures. So with TOCO going down, we would have been more devastated from a taxation perspective if we hadn't done that over the past four years. We also have an aggressive amenities investment strategy. We're repositioning the community as a livable community, one that's attractive and affordable for people who are looking at that whole affordability conundrum. And we have quite an in-migration of individuals who bring their jobs with them and they bring big uh, bank accounts with them, frankly, because they're cashing out elsewhere. At the same time, we have an aggressive economic development strategy that's repositioning the community in, on one hand away from our ultimate dependence on forestry, but on the other hand in a way that we can reinvent the forest sector and take advantage of the fact that we have an integrated manufacturing sector here. So we started aggressively and quickly moving on a number of fronts and knowing that this day was going to come as opposed to saying, you know, we hope that the worst case scenario isn't realized and we're just going to duck and cover. Communities today like uh, Clearwater with the shutdown of the Canfor Mill, a uh, hundred mile house is dealing with uh, forestry news on a number of fronts. Those communities in no small way are, are, are devastated. Uh, your advice to them? Well, and again, every community is going to be different and every community is going to have to find their own way through this. I have had conversations with the mayor of hundred mile house. Uh, you know, they are in a very particularly vulnerable situation given the scale that they're dealing with and, and their community size. Uh, but I think really local leadership has to have a vision for their community beyond forestry. That's where they have to move to quickly. What are the strengths? What are the things that uh, those communities can do beyond forestry? And how do we engage together? And that's what we're talking about as mayors. How do we engage, engage together 
to get the province and the federal government to help us to accelerate achieving that vision. Every community is going to be different. They're going to have different strengths and weaknesses that need to be addressed. But I think it's, it behooves us as a local elected leadership to have the vision, to have the strategy, and we then need the province and the federal government to step in and help us to accelerate our strategy. And that's certainly the dialogue that I'm having uh, with the current NDP government. Do you, uh, and the last question here, would you suspect that this forestry thing is going to be a major topic of conversation at uh, the UBCM convention this September? <laughs> I would suspect it is. You know, it, it, we're not over uh, the hump yet, and of course, uh, one of our vulnerabilities is we're a pulp mill town, and, and that'll be the second wave of closure. So this is a conversation that's going to be going on for uh, quite a few months, if not another couple of years. Bob, always a pleasure. Thank you for taking some time this morning. Thanks, Shane. That was the Mayor of Quinnell, Bob Simpson, discussing the crisis in the forest sector. We'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, the MLA for Peace River South will join us to talk about a situation close to his heart. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Overcast day here in Camel. It's a real pleasure to welcome to the program BC Liberals MLA for Peace River South, Mike Bernier. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Good morning, Shane. How about you? I'm good. Have all the uh, Cuban cervezas uh, worked their way through the system yet or what? <laughs> it's, uh, they're pretty well all finished, yeah. It, <laughs> it was a good, uh, a good time at the end of session. Uh, you know, when you're when you're traveling so much through Victoria, being one of the furthest MLAs, you know, it's always nice to have just uh, you know a week break with the family and get to uh, make sure they recognize who you are. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Hey, uh, let's uh, let's turn our attention to a to a pretty serious matter, and I know one that's uh, really close to your heart. Uh, a young lady named Samantha Bennett uh, was in a pretty serious crash. She suffered some pretty serious injuries. And there was a series of delays in the air ambulance front, getting her out of your riding and into a trauma hospital down in Vancouver. Uh, she ended up passing away, unfortunately. Uh, her family obviously devastated. Uh, you have pushed for some kind of changes here to do, not with air ambulance here in the province, but uh, gaining access to the STARS, which is the Alberta version of air ambulance, which is uh, pretty close to the area where, sh where she was in hospital. Uh, what's going on here, Mike? Why, why was this young lady denied a, a quick and expedient trip to the hospital and a chance at life? Yeah, thanks, Shane. You know, it was a devastating situation. I wish I could say it's a, a first time or a unique situation, but unfortunately, uh, we seem to hear these stories uh, quite often, whether it's, uh, you know, somebody with a heart attack or, in this case, you know, young Samantha. And we're just celebrating, um, I shouldn't say celebrating, probably the wrong word, recognizing uh, it's the one-year anniversary uh, since her passing. And so it's something that the family's really been pushing for. But basically what happened in this situation um, was, you know, we had this, this car accident, uh, the young girl has severe uh, head trauma, was in the local hospital. The doctor said she needed to get uh, to a proper trauma unit in a large center like Vancouver uh, as soon as possible. But there's also the opportunities for a lot of border communities like ours to use uh, Edmonton. You know, up until just uh, about three, four years ago, people used to get medevaced or referred by their physicians to Grand Prairie, which is only an hour away, or to Edmonton, which is just over an hour by, by flight. Those calls never took place. In fact, the, uh, 
uh, all of the calls said, no, we're not sending you. We're going to send you and keep you in BC. Um, the problem with that was delay after delay. It ended up being almost 24 hours from the time of the accident to the time she was medevaced out because of a series of delays of getting the aircraft up to our region. And by then it was too late. What needs to change, Mike, here to, I assume there's some kind of bureaucratic issue. Uh, I mean, it seems to me uh, that a simple logic would say we have a, a situation. We have somebody's life hanging in the balance. What's our best option? Let's do that as fast as possible. What prevented that line of thinking and that course of action from happening? Yeah, unfortunately, we seem to have this uh, this border between BC and Alberta for so many uh, services, and this is one of them. We have STARS Ambulance, which is, for most people who uh, know, is a helicopter uh, situation where they, in our area, get funding from our regional district, municipalities, and a lot of industry. So if there is a situation, they can get called in. So typically, though, it's been for uh, industry. Uh, for our oil and gas workers or off in remote areas if they need uh, uh, a helicopter to come in. But it has helped us in some situations for uh, like this. But the problem is Northern Health does not have uh, a signed agreement with STARS or with Alberta to allow people to transfer across the border, even though from where I'm sitting right now, it's only about 10 miles away into Alberta. But instead, people have to be sent to Vancouver uh, and in this case, and like many others, there's a huge delay. I, to some degree, I get that. Uh, but to a larger and more common sense degree, I think to myself when I when I hear you saying those words, okay, we have BC, okay, we have Alberta, but at the end of the day, we're all Canadian. At the end of the day, we all have our loved ones across this country, and we would like to think that if somebody's in that situation and their life is literally hanging in the balance, that there would be the option to say we can get them here and get them help as fast as possible without ridiculous bureaucracy like that. Well, and I'm sure it's a lot more difficult than what I'm making it. Otherwise, this would have been solved a long time ago. But really, in my opinion, this is our health authorities. Uh, the ministry needs to be sitting down between BC and Alberta. Uh, the Northern Health Authority in my region needs to be having those partnerships with STARS. Does it mean signing some kind of financial agreement? Yes, but we all, uh, to your point, we're all Canadians, and there's, there's uh, times where we have to say, okay, is this about saving someone's life, or is this about worrying about a check we might have to write to another province to, to pay them back? I mean, uh, up, up until a couple of years ago, like I said, doctors were referring people to Alberta. Uh, Alberta came in with uh, Alberta First policy, and it really slowed down uh, the amount of people that could go that way. Uh, but in a situation like this, a traumatic situation, this is not just going uh, to have uh, you know your finger operated on. This is a traumatic situation that required somebody's immediate attention, and we need to be able to you know cut through that red tape and have those partnerships to allow the opportunities to hopefully uh, save people's lives. Has there been any change right now, any movement in that direction, or if, uh, hopefully not? But if another tragic situation unfolds similar to. Uh, what Samantha Bennett's endured, are we still at risk of, of having that option blacked out or, or whatever, having that life hang in balance while people try and figure something out? Well, we are starting to see some discussion take place, and I really want to thank the family, because, of course, Samantha's family has been 
very vocal about the fact that there's nothing they can do now for their daughter, but they want her situation to be well known so people can actually talk about it and say, okay, we need to do a better job. So if at least something comes out of the tragedy is we can fix this. I did talk with the Minister of Health through the ministry. Uh, They committed to me that they were going to meet with Northern Health to look at what kind of... um, partnerships, I guess, that we could continue to work on. And, you know, this is, again, this is not something that just happened recently. It's been been going on for a while, and we just need to be able to try to fix this problem. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you've had a little more years under your belt in the father game than I have, uh, but since becoming a father, issues like this, I just, they hit me a lot harder, and I know that that poor family must be devastated, especially thinking there might have been a chance there. So I'm hoping for change here, Mike. Um, Absolutely. Before I let you go, we do have a few minutes left, and I do want to get an update. Uh, the, the Mountain Caribou situation, which, as we know, caused a big kerfuffle in your neck of the woods, Blair Lextrom, a guy you well know was, uh, was charged as the Premier Special Easy on to figure things out. I haven't heard any news on that front lately. Uh, just an update, are things on a better path to the best of your knowledge or not on that situation? Well, I wouldn't say a better path, only because we don't know what the path is yet. Um, of course, one of the big frustrations was and Blair has acknowledged uh, publicly as well that there was just not adequate consultation, there wasn't adequate uh, relationships uh, with all of the different stakeholders before any decisions were being made. And with the big downturn that we're seeing right now in closure of mills around the province, this would just be one more nail in the coffin uh, for any mill that's just hanging on by their fingertips if we uh, start losing parts of the backcountry for their uh, annual allowable cut. But in saying that, uh, the Premier did commit to me uh, two weeks ago at the end of session that probably within the next week uh, he will be uh, discussing it, uh, Blair Lexham's uh, recommendations with Cabinet. Uh, I have received a call actually just uh, as of yesterday saying that we're going to get a briefing tomorrow from uh, the ministry staff on the lecture report on uh, what their findings and recommendations might be. So it's good timing you ask the question. We might know more in the next couple of days. Are you hopeful? I mean, I know what a fire starter that was and how frustrated you were. And uh, there were certainly uh, inflamed tempers and the and, uh, situation was deteriorating between the communities and First Nations, things like. Is your sense that things have calmed down and that there is a chance or a reasonable solution here, Mike, or no? Well, it's definitely... I mean, I would say it was a good political move on the Premier's part because definitely by putting uh, Blair Lextrom as a local councillor and former MLA uh, as a liaison to give advice, it kind of calmed the, the waters temporarily, but it also gave that uncertainty because there was no commitment from the government that they would actually follow through with any recommendations. So there's a lot of questions still out there. A lot of people are still calling me saying, okay, we're not ramped up as much right now because we're waiting to see. And so I think what will happen is over the next week or two, either A, we won't hear anything and that'll get people nervous and ramped up again, or we will hear a decision. And depending on what that decision is, uh, will be uh, on how people react for sure. As long as people are consulted, everybody wants to save the caribou, but we want to keep the backcountry open and find that uh, relationship partnership that can work to make uh, make everything uh, happen in a proper way. My last question on that topic, and uh, I think it dates back to the Harper government when the federal the federal government said, "Listen, we want 
plans from the provinces to save the endangered caribou because there's certainly some of those populations that are that are critical. Uh, to date, I don't think a single province has tabled a plan, and I know the concern was that the federal government could just come in and do something or sort of take the power away from local decision making. Uh, are you are you still concerned about you know the province not having its priorities in place and having the door open to the federal government doing something whether we like it or not? Well. I don't know if I'll trust what the federal government is doing right now on a, on a lot of different files, and that makes me a little nervous on how they would act on, on this one. So in saying that, though, the federal government has been putting pressure on the provinces for a long time. They have been asking B.C. to do something. In fact, in 2017, we put forward almost $29 million. We were working with local First Nations. We were doing culling. We were doing penning. We were doing breeding programs, and we were seeing success. It kind of surprised me with the new government, though, that they, in my opinion, overreacted and went straight to a partnership agreement rather than working with the federal government to say there actually are things being done and there are some progresses being made. Uh, this was, in my opinion, again, a knee-jerk reaction to uh, pressure from the federal government. And as you're seeing right across the country right now, there's a lot of provinces pushing back on decisions from the federal government, and I think our government should have, uh, could have done a better job on this file. Mike, always a pleasure. Uh, thank you for taking a few minutes out of your day and talking about uh, some important issues. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, and all the best. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, uh, sure. That's uh, Peace River South MLA. Mike Bernier talking about a very serious situation uh, blocking sort of uh, air ambulance access from Alberta. In at least one case may have played a role in the death of a young lady in his riding, as well as an update on the caribou front. Some interesting news there uh, potentially developing tomorrow. So that's interesting stuff. Quick break on the Woodford Show. We'll finish up on the other side. We'll get to meet a member of the Nonprofit Society pushing for the Downtown Performing Arts Centre. Local News Now. Radio NL. 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Thank you for listening. Well, yesterday at uh, Kamloops Council, a uh, group forming a nonprofit society to push for this downtown performing arts center concept, the 2.0 version of, uh, introduced themselves to council. Uh, one of the members, the executive director of the Kamloops Art Gallery, Margaret Krumka, joins me in studio now. Good morning, Margaret. How are you? Good. Good to see you. Hey, thanks for coming in and being a spokesperson for your group. Really appreciate that. Thank you. So I guess first question first, we're, we're aware of the proposal. Uh, it does come with a significant financial contribution from Ron Fawcett. Uh, the Fawcett family. Um, it is a very interesting proposal. It looks like a very dynamic building. Uh, it, I, in my opinion, I think it would add a huge component to our downtown core and really make the city pop. But um, we got a long way to go to get there. Mm -hmm. So first off, your group is formed to push for, advocate for this project. Maybe give me an idea what brought the group together and what its priorities are. Yeah, well, I think right after... Um Ron's really generous offer of $10 million. Like, that's really unprecedented for a community our size. Uh, after that very generous offer to city in uh, January, there was a lot of talk. So a lot of us in the arts organizations and those of us that have been wanting this center since uh, the referendum for two, four years ago now, um, you know, we wanted to make sure the city was interested. And they've indicated they are. So that started a few of us getting a little bit more serious about how could we realize this. Right. And it, it can't just come from uh, the arts groups. It has to come from the community. So we sort of put our feelers out 
who were really strong influences in our community and who would be interested in dedicating their time to this project. And we formed a society in the last month. And that was what we presented to council yesterday. What is the role going to be with the society, though? Is it to be out in the community and, and talking to people and pushing for the idea? Is it to, you know, potentially fundraise and uh, establish a pool of money that would possibly go in the, I mean, uh, or whether there's yes, anything, or, oh, yeah, D, all of the above. All of the above. So. The goals, we've kind of got six um, efforts that we're putting our attention to right now. The first one is to develop a really sound business case. There was a case designed with the last proposal, and I think a lot of us felt like it could have been a bit more robust. Um, you and I were talking off air, the devil is in the details, and we want it to be really clear to this community uh, what the economic impact of this center is and what the social impact is. So the business case is the first thing that's getting off the ground right now. Mm -hmm. Our goal is to then come back to uh, City Council hopefully this summer and say, this is what we propose, this is the price tag, these are our next steps. Um, in tandem with that is communicating with the community what we want to realize and as you mentioned, it raises as much money as we can. Money issue, I know from talking to the mayor that he considers that really important. Obviously, we have one referendum under our belts. The idea mm -hmm. of an art center was defeated in a referendum. The price tag people thought was was excessive. Uh, the community came out against it. Um, the idea of selling something to taxpayers when they look at an overall cost and a burden can be uh, yeah. a hard a hard thing to overcome when you're pushing for an idea. Mm -hmm. uh, I get the sense this, this proposal is in a better place off the start, uh, but still uh, it's going to be a challenge to uh, sell to the community. Um, here's your price tag. This is how blah, blah, blah. That's going to be crucial. And especially you and I were talking about, and I feel like, I feel like they're not a majority, but I feel like there is a group in the community that is like, oh, we've done this before. Oh, yeah. I don't want to pay for this, that kind of stuff. Well, um, how, do, how do you get over that hurdle? Is it a matter of like, okay, we've raised this huge pool of money on top of the Ron Fawcett donation, we've covered off half the cost or something. How do you, how do you tell people, okay, this is going to be a benefit. This is going to bring money. Sure, it's going to cost us a little bit now, mm -hmm. but it's going to pay off later. How do you sell that message to enough people to get the idea by? Well, I think the biggest thing is um, everybody's seeing themselves in that center. And the intent is to design it where you actually, you can see yourself, your children having their wedding there, your children graduating there, you participating in an event there. I was just looking at some of the um, programs and events that come through the Nanaimo Port Theatre, which is a similar size structure in Nanaimo that's just been wonderful for that community. There was a fellow from the World Wrestling Federation that was going to be giving a talk. There was a speaker series. There's the tenors from Vancouver performing. Mm. And this is on the island. So imagine us located between Vancouver and Calgary and all the touring performances that come through. Um, at a nice, heard James McDonald from Western Canada Theatre talking on the radio earlier this week saying he spent his, he's not a father, but he spent Father's Day with all the fathers in Kamloops as children as they were rehearsing or um, doing auditions for Mary Poppins that's coming this December. Hmm. So that's 150 kids in town getting an opportunity to perform. So I think it's those kinds of experiences in Kamloops that people see themselves in the Performing Arts Centre. I guess last question, we're just about out of time here, but uh, we have a concept. We have money from the Fawcett family. Mm -hmm. You guys took a look at that over a period of a month. I believe you said you've pulled together this society of which you're a part. 
Um, you've introduced yourself now publicly to council here on the radio station this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the next step? What, what's the next thing for this nonprofit society to go out and do as you begin the process of advocating for this performing arts center? The big one right now, as I mentioned, the business case is under development right now. Um, the next piece will be kind of how we're going to communicate and sort of allay the concerns and actually ignite the enthusiasm of this community behind this project through a communications plan. Perfect. And I'd be uh, lax of me if, before we let you go. What's coming up at the Camelot Art Gallery? Oh, great. Well, middle of July, we have an opening exhibition, uh, Contemporary Ceramics. And as I was sharing with you off air, there'll be opportunities to throw clay, like not make pots, <laughs> but physically throw clay at walls in the gallery uh, put your hands on silica and get your hands into materials, scream into these huge vessels, um, a really different take on uh, ceramics in our community. be well, really fun. Well, it sounds like after you finish cleaning all the clay off yeah. the wall, you can go scream into a vat to reduce your stress. Exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Margaret, thank you so much for coming in. Really appreciate it. Good to talk to you. Thanks. Margaret Crumka, the Executive Director of the Kamloops Art Gallery, talking as a spokesperson for a nonprofit group that's pushing for the Kamloops Downtown Performing Arts Center concept. An interesting concept. Very curious to see where it goes. That's it for today's Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. 1230 Merritt, 1340 Ashcroft, Cash Creek, from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL, 610 AM, local news now.